calling. You know, maybe that's a deeper sense. What, God, are you calling me to do in this moment? And there are two threads of calling, I think, that run through our lives. There's a sense of a primary calling, which is to be a a faithful disciple, someone who's faithful in the responsibilities and um, and 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 roles in our life. But there's also a more particular expression of calling, which is how do we work this out in our full time work? Don't get so focused on institutions that you're not thinking about people. And don't get so focused on people that you're not actually thinking that or remembering that God cares about institutions as well. Mm -hmm. He actually cares about everything. You've got to hold it all together. So if you're working in a business and you have no people contact that day, you still can have a a kingdom day. It doesn't matter if you had people in uh, interaction that day. You still can be doing reconciling work, just building a really good spreadsheet. Because that's bringing order, that's helping others live with order. It's, it, 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 it can be restorative, reconciling work. As much as serving your colleague or even sharing the gospel with your colleague. Welcome to Season 1 of the Upward Student Voices podcast, an initiative of Upper House. In this season of the Upward Student Podcast, we focus on faith, work, and calling, and how as students, we can live these practices out in our time on campus and after college. Our podcast is designed and hosted by students for students. We interview leaders in the work and faith movement and local practitioners who integrate work and faith in their careers. Upper House, a center for Christian gathering and learning, We welcome all who long to explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul. We desire genuine transformation for ourselves, our campus community, and the world. You can learn more about Upper House on our website at www.upperhouse.org. Be sure to follow us on social media where you can find us anywhere at Upper House UW. Episode 1. In this episode, Upper House interns Aidan Deteen and myself, Lindsay Horton, interviewed John Terrell, Executive Director for the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation and Upper House. John shares his journey as an advocate in the faith and work movement, his personal faith journey, and his experiences working in bank lending, InterVarsity, and Seattle Pacific University before coming to Upper House. Our team is grateful for John's wisdom and knowledge. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. Hey guys, uh, today we're going to be interviewing John Terrell, who is the executive director at Upper House. John, welcome. Hey, great to be here. Um, so I think the the biggest thing we really... Um, wanted to first address is just like your faith journey. Um, you know, cause obviously that's, you know, the biggest thing. And, you know, we believe that the Lord leads us in a lot of ways and guides us to where, um, we work and, uh, where our vocation is. And so I guess the main question we had for you already is, uh, how did you come to faith and what does that story look like? Yeah. So I did not grow up in a Christian home or I grew up in a nominal Christian home. So I remember a, a grandmother who was a believing grandmother and um, more extended relatives, but and we were 
semi-frequent church attenders. So I had some some religious education. I went to a private middle school that was a church-based um, school, so I got some religious education there. But it really didn't sink in mm. until I was through college. I, there were seeds all along, so I can re- reflect back and remember experiences from childhood. I can remember experiences in middle school. We had to memorize some of the Psalms in middle school. And I remember the impact of that, even though I didn't really understand what I was doing. It just felt like a memorization exercise. It really made a big difference. And um, it was something that really stuck with me. But it wasn't until after uh, college, when I was in my first job, that I really um, deepened my faith. And it was really through just a, a difficult season. Mostly it was a, a, a breakup of a dating relationship mm-hmm. and um, some really good friends that surrounded me um, that were uh, friends from work and from the community. And um, they just came alongside and said, hey, join our Bible study, uh, which I did. And um, it was, it was you know, it's, it's, it's been life changing ever since. In fact, a couple of these guys I still meet with regularly. Oh, wow. We live in different parts of the country, but from time to time they will get together and have a retreat Um, And so these friendships have really lasted. And that goes back Mm. now. Well, I was about 25 when I came to faith. Mm. So it's been almost 30 years. I'm curious, John, um, you said you grew up in a nominally Christian home, but it wasn't until they invited you to this Bible study that things kind of clicked. What was different? What was the understanding that you came to? um, And how did that make you want to give your life to Jesus? Yeah, well, it was a slow process for me. I've never seen this in print with C.S. Lewis, but I've heard, and I hope this is right, somebody can check it out, cut it out of the podcast if it's wrong, <laughs> but um, that, that, he, um, that he came to faith on the motorcycle of a friend of his, um, mm. and he likened it to sort of like waking up after a deep sleep, that, it, mm. that he, he kind of woke and woke into this new reality, right, this sort of consciousness. And so my, my process was a little bit like that where it, there was not a single moment. It was more of a, a slow process, but the pieces clicked mm. and for the first time. And, and then the, the logical pieces of faith were backed up by just really deep, true friendships, mm. authentic friendships, where these guys really did care for me, and they were just authentically interested in me. Mm. Um, so it was not a manip- manipulative kind of thing. It was, it was really a genuine coming alongside. And the two of those together Mm. is what moved me across the threshold of faith. Um, We're just curious to know about your past career experiences. Um, And so like, obviously right now you're the executive director at the Stephen Laurel Brown Foundation. And um, you probably had a lot of careers in previous sectors, though, and uh, your experiences range from consulting to campus ministry to working at the university. Uh, and now you're here at the foundation. Can you uh, just give us like a timeline of what your career path has looked like leading up to now? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the advantages of getting a little bit older is that you can look back and see the order of, of the life that, that you've led or lived. Um, so my um, I graduated from college in 1989, which um, was uh, 
a good year to graduate, I guess. Um, <laughs> but it was it was a downturn. It was a time of mm. of a downturning economy, mm. uh, and so that was interesting. My first job was um, working in banking, and I was part of a a bank that back then was called NCNB. It then became Nations Bank, and it then became Bank of America. Oh. So I I went from Bloomington, Indiana, where I went to school, to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, where NCNB was headquartered. And so I was part of banking when it was going through a major shift. It was um, deregulating. And so you had a lot of banks purchasing other banks. And you had this really sort of interesting savings and loan crisis and this downturn in the economy. And my first job was in real estate lending. So I went through a credit training program. And it was about a half undergraduate students who, you know, half undergraduate graduates and then half MBAs. And so it was really an interesting mix of, mm. of people. And um, so I was, um, rather than generating new loans, though, and doing real estate lending, the de- it was such a significant downturn that I was focused on workout lending, um, which is uh, helping to restructure bad loans. Mm. So my first job, the reason I'm telling this story is that it was a very sort of pastoral first job mm. who were at one of the lowest moments of their lives. These were sort of small or medium-sized businesses was really my portfolio. And and they were desperate. Um, they, they were, you know, uh, on the precipice of losing everything. And so my job was to go in and to figure out how to either restructure the loan mm. or to liquidate the assets and pay back the loan. And so, and it, and so it was a, you know, a really interesting job. And that led to um, the decision to go back to, to business school. As is typical, I worked for about four years, went back uh, and did an MBA program. And then I shifted into uh, consulting work. And I worked for a company called The Hay Group, which is now part of Corn Ferry, but it's a large human resources consulting firm. They deal with all kinds of pe- people issues, and they have offices located all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so that was an experience to begin to develop skills at thinking about strategic people issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that will circle back into my life at a later point in time. Mm-hmm. I had a really profound experience um, in business school, or just before business school is when I my conversion experience came. And so... I was really seeking out opportunities for Christian um, engagement in business school. Mm. And I landed at a place where there was a strong Christian MBA community mm. made up of students and faculty and staff from all over the world. Mm. And so from the first weeks of my Christian journey, I was surrounded with people, by people that had a, had, had a very faithful perspective mm. on what it means to think about business um, and, and being a Christ follower. Um, so that led to time within a varsity, um, where I uh, eventually left the Hay Consulting Group. And because I'd had such a profound and significant transformative experience in business school, I um, joined InterVarsity as their director for MBA ministry and spent uh, a number of years doing that and then working as a chaplain um, at Harvard Business School and wow. at the um, MIT Business School, the Sloan School of Management. So I was in Cambridge working with um, MBA students and faculty in that context. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then cool. and then eventually moved to Madison with InterVarsity where I directed all of the professional school ministries. So I had law school ministry, medical school, business school, wow. 
journalism schools, um, anything that would be deemed a professional school at the mm-hmm. graduate level. Mm-hmm. And I traveled all over the country. I mean, I was kind of mostly itinerating and helping to start these groups. University is based here in Madison, so mm-hmm. that's what took me from Cambridge to to Madison. And that led to um, getting to know some of the people at Seattle Pacific University. And they were starting a center there called the Center for Integrity in Business, which was really a center um, to come alongside academics who were thinking about a Christian understanding of business, but also to come alongside business leaders and practitioners who were really trying to figure out how to work out these principles in the busyness and in the tensions of real-life marketplace mm-hmm. work and calling. And that eventually led me um, back to Madison, where um, some folks from Madison uh, shared with me the the start of the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation and asked if if this point I was married if we might be interested in in considering this job so that's really the the profile I've been in maybe five or six different roles mostly in startup where I've been the like the first executive director full-time kind of person helping to helping to launch something um and it's taking me through through business to you know some ministry training to working in Christian nonprofits to working at a at a Christian college university um, to a private operating foundation. So I've had a chance to work in a number of different contexts as well. Wow. And you became a Christian like fairly early on in your, your business career. What did it look like for you to navigate next steps or moving to a new business or a new phase in your career um, in leaning on the Lord and seeing what his will for your life to be? How, how did that look in you playing playing that out and navigating those things? I think, you know, one of the things I think is a real strength is is learning to be discerning at each stage of mm-hmm. your of your leadership um, growth and um, being attentive to what's in front of you, but also being attentive to what's in your peripheral vision. And so paying attention maybe would be a spiritual mm-hmm. discipline, you know, yeah. the discipline of paying attention. And so... I don't think I did this perfectly, but I think at each stage asking questions um, about calling, you know, maybe that's a deeper sense. What, God, are you calling me to do in this moment? And there are two threads of calling, I think, that run through our lives. There's the sense of a primary calling, which is to be a, a faithful disciple, someone who's faithful in the responsibilities and um and 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 roles in our life, but there's also a more particular expression of calling, which is how do we work this out in our full time work? So my primary calling is to be faithful and follow Jesus well as well as I can, and to learn and grow in that capacity. And there's things I can do to to stay on that track. Um, there's also things I can do to be discerning about my vocational calling. Where am I gifted? Where are my interests? What are critical incidents in my life that maybe are revealing things to me? about where I should serve. And so I think both of those are tracks that run at the same time, yeah. and we need to be attentive to both of them. That's awesome. And that's that's obviously a, a very good embodiment that I think you hold in your position, uh, and I think it's very evident in all the people that uh, work under you that we are definitely led very well just because we know that you're faithfully following the Lord. And so I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I might say, just just to add a little bit here, is that um, maybe we'll talk more about this, but this idea of vocation versus occupation. Mm. Um, I think I learned pretty early on that vocation was going to be a more meaningful pursuit. 
Mm. Um, lots of, uh, particularly coming out of business school, you know, you're sort of on this track where the, the companies come and cater to you. You're like, they sponsor all your parties, you know, like it's from the, from the very beginning, it's like this in, in business schools where, you know, from the, like the first week you're there, they're sponsoring events and things like that. Mm. Um, and that might be different than if you graduate in the humanities or, you know, it's just a different kind of track, but, but it's easy to get caught up in that and mm. to begin to think about your career or your occupation. And career is a, an interesting word because it actually comes from the French word carrier. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> um, or carrier. Um, but it, it, and it's a, it's a mid 16th century word, but it really means like a road or a racetrack. That's mm. the, that's oh. the original derivation. And, um, I didn't really want to live my life as a racetrack. Like that doesn't feel like the kind of path I want to be on. Vocation is a much deeper concept. It's really about discerning our interests, our gifts, um, opportunities, passions, and deploying them in a way that really serves others and serves our, uh, ourselves. I mean, I think it's okay to put yourself, your family in that equation because even scripture says, you know, we're called to care for those in our immediate circle, right? I mean, that's a, a biblical call as well. But ultimately, vocation is other-oriented. Mm. It's not just about material gain or success or brand. Um, in fact, it's really not about that at all. Mm. It's really about service, serving others. Um, and so uh, I just had good mentors, people along the way. I never, I, I certainly didn't um, practice this perfectly. But it se- just seemed to me over time and pretty early on that that was going to be a more meaningful pursuit yeah. and a more sustainable pursuit than than being focused on occupation or career. Yeah, and are there any specific stories um, or, oppor- or learning opportunities that you had growing up to help kind of lead you to knowing that like vocation is about serving others? I think that if I go way back, I think the things that were formative would be just places of struggle. Hmm. I think um, Wendell Berry says, um, he has a line from his writing, the impeded stream is the one that sings. Hmm. And so that's a good reminder that struggle um, has purpose and that you can... um, if, if you can harness the learning from those and let those experiences transform you, it will, it will form in you. It will form you into a different kind of person mm. who will be a more ready and able leader mm. and be more not only to lead yourself um, better, but to lead others well. And so I would just say from, from early on, just, just typical kinds of struggles. Um, I came from a broken home. My parents were divorced. That happened mm. when I was in early years of high school. That was a setback for sure. Um, and so, you know, how, what do you do coming out of that? Um, and I was the oldest child, so I probably owned that in ways that were a little different than yeah. um, other siblings. My, I just have one brother, but how he owned it or incorporated that. You know, you have losses in your life. Um, you lose uh, family members, um, grandparents, whatever it might be. Uh, you, have, um, you have places where you're not successful. Mm. What happens when things don't turn out? the way that you had hoped they would turn out. And so those are learning experiences. So I, I'm sure I had my fair share of those. (laughs) 
even with a, a you know in many ways a really wonderful childhood mm-hmm. um there were certainly moments of struggle and setback and failure that um that contributed to this deeper sense of vocation or calling or wanting to serve others because mm. i think at the end of the day they may they those kinds of experiences are the ones that open you up to um the needs of others you mm. become more attentive mm. to what's going around you rather than just focused on on winning or success or if if you let those experiences form you in a way that that make you more compassionate and empathetic mm-hmm. And I would say that we working here at Upper House definitely benefit from your mindset as serving others. Uh, How would you describe your work here at Upper House and the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation? What's changed a lot. Um, I think in the early days, it was there were just a couple of us and and you learn to do everything. Mm. And literally. You're ready for whatever happens. It could be a a toilet backing up. Um, <laughs> it could be people trying to deliver packages and you have to be the one to meet them in the loading dock. Mm. And now it's, it's really changed. So now I'm more about um, empowering the team, trying to um, eliminate obstacles that might be in the way of team members um, getting their work done, um, trying to listen and understand what it is that they're most interested in, where they're gifted, where they have passion, interest, and trying to to align their passions with the needs of the organization. So I think most jobs are big enough where if you're attentive, you can figure out ways to align uh, passions and interests to the larger needs of the organization. Mm-hmm. And so there's um, there's lots of time that I spend doing that. I think in, in some ways um, th- there's still, um, even though I'm not directly involved with all the programmatic decisions, there's a dimension of um, wanting to make sure that we're um, charting a good course with our programming, that we're um, incorporating a mix of uh, topics and themes and people so that it feels like a well-balanced uh, meal that we're providing, yeah. that it really is going to be helpful for the spiritual growth and transformation of the community that we're called to serve, which is the University of Wisconsin and Madison. Mm-hmm. There's lots of um, administrative and financial responsibilities. There's a huge entrepreneurial component. Um, we don't want to just stay stand still. We want to keep growing and evolving. And COVID-19 has certainly created those kinds of experiences for us where we're imagining new ways of doing our work and mm-hmm. reaching um, different, more people and just reaching people in different kinds of ways. So those are all part of the mix. Um, it's... I've actually I actually walked my job description in. It's there's a lot here, but th- you know the good news is is as things get more complicated, you build a successful team, and you empower that team, and you can trust that team. So you're in some ways it becomes more fun because you um, you find ways to set team members free mm-hmm. and help them achieve the work that they've been called to do. And so it it still feels busy, um, but it's maybe more interesting because you're seeing others carry out the work in ways that's really gratifying. Yeah. So I think you've um, touched on a lot of great strengths um, that someone in your position should have being attentiveness and service towards others. Um, What are some habits that you would say someone going into your field or in a similar position as you should build? 
One of the things I think that's helpful is um, learning how to manage on all degrees. And so what I mean by that is learning to manage um, laterally and to be a good colleague. I should use maybe the better terminology is learning to be a good colleague uh, laterally. What does it mean to really support your teammates? And you can do that at any stage of your career development. You can figure mm-hmm. out how to do that. Um, what does it mean to manage upward well? This this was a new insight for me um, probably that came 15 years ago. I remember I was in a friend's car and I was just very privately, but kind of complaining about my boss mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, just describing like frustration. And he was actually a really good boss. You know, I was, I, I was in a good situation, but um, it, this friend said, you know, I, I don't think what you're doing is right. Like, I think you're called as much as you think he's called to serve you. Mm-hmm. You're also called to serve him. Like, I think you need to think about this a little bit in more of a two way street. And it was, it was really a, it was a really good comment at the right time because mm-hmm. this guy had the integrity to make that kind of statement. And I, was, I wasn't helping the supervisor in any way by grumbling. Or, and there were things mm-hmm. I could be doing better as an employee that would serve him well because I, I didn't understand all of the complexity of his job Absolutely. and the demands that were on his job. And so learning to manage up, and that never goes away. So even if you're the executive director or the CEO, you're reporting to a board you might reporting to um, foundations that are supporting your work financially. I mean, there, there's always, and ultimately you're reporting to God, right? So right. we're always simultaneously a, a follower and we're often, you know, charged to lead others as well, right? So so learning how to, to manage laterally, learning how to manage um, upward, and then also just, you know, caring for people well that are underneath us in the organizational structure. They're not really underneath us, but, you know, it, it, per the org chart, yeah. they're, um, they're underneath us. And I think there's, um, there's skill in doing each of those well. Mm. So that would be one thing. Um, I just think se- uh, self-reflection is really important as well. Mm. There are typical and common derailers, like they've studied this. And there's like six or seven things that derail people. And there's no real magic about it. Like people are going to, if they derail, meaning they're, they're going to hit a limit, you know, um, and then just sort of peter out, so yeah. to speak. Um, it's because of one of these five or six or seven things. And so I think what helps us understand that is self-awareness because we can, we can change the formula mm. and it's often by um, tackling some of our blind spots. And so we need the input of others we need to be um, real with ourselves and allow God, the Holy Spirit, to shine light on those spaces. But self-reflection would be one. Richard Rohr, um, who's an author and a Franciscan priest, he, he prays for a humiliation a day, um, <laughs> which I think is a good prayer, actually. You know, I, it doesn't yeah, have to that's be a, a humble prayer. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a yeah. huge humiliation, but, you know, God, bring me a humiliation mm. every day that reminds me that I'm fallible. Mm. Um, that's, that seems to me to be a really faithful prayer that, that leads to good self-reflection. And then I think, um, spiritual disciplines are really important. Um, I think you just have to build those in. They're really easy to fall by the wayside. And, um, I think they can be different for every person. Um, so for me, scripture reading, journaling, walking, trying to have some semblance of the Sabbath, finding little times um, during the week to take a break, Mm. 
and to rest and to reflect. And then also times in the year to do that yeah. is really good. So you can think about Sabbath on a weekly basis. You can think about it. I think about it on a daily basis. Mm. For me, it's often early, early morning time. Mm-hmm. And then you can think about just the rhythms of your ear, uh, not your ear, but your year. <laughs> <laughs> um, rhythms of your year um, mm. and try to find those seasons where you can enter into Sabbath. Rest and reflection. It's not just rest. It's mm. also reflection, right? Where we're, we're very consciously um, putting our life before God and, um, and, and, and letting him speak into it and finding rest and, and, and um, solace in that, mm. in that communion. So those are three, three things that I think have been helpful over time. And so the next thing we wanted to talk about too was um, your involvement with the uh, faith and work movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the main question we wanted to ask for you is um, obviously you've been a leader in the work and faith movement for a bit of time. Can you just give us an overview of what this movement is and why is it so important? Yeah, it's, um, I have been, it really coincides with my own, my own journey of faith. And so it's, it's really the resurgence of the faith at work movement probably started in the early 1990s and so it's it's been going for about 30 years maybe you know 25 30 years but if you look back over the centuries you know there have been um, expressions of this um, and surges of this over time now I'm just talking about the Protestant tradition so the Catholic tradition has been very strong mm-hmm. or stronger on the faith on faith at work and even the Orthodox tradition there's a a sense that um, all of life is sacramental. Mm-hmm. And so they have a, an understanding of this that is, I think, in some ways richer and deeper mm-hmm. than the Protestant tradition. So it depends on, you know, first thing you have to say is just like, what stream of Christianity are you talking about? But particularly within Protestantism and then evangelicalism, um, it, it's really been the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um and there's just been a, a burgeoning of writing and um, ministry-oriented groups, um, faith at work ministries that um, that really have taken over, taken off over these last two three decades. And you can even track the numbers; it's really mm-hmm. amazing. And there's been a lot written on this. So you can one of the books that's really a good definitive history on this, which I think is being updated, is David Miller's. God at Work: The History and Promise of the Faith at Work Movement, and he takes the movement all the way back to 1890. Um, but really the more modern wave, what he calls wave three is he, he says started in 1986. I said early nineties probably was before that, but 1986 is where he's got it. But he's really started to notice it in the early 1990s. So it's this broad, um, sense of wanting to reconnect Sunday to Monday Mm-hmm. That for so long, I think there was a professionalization of church work, and that was good. It brought sophistication. Seminaries got more sophisticated. Uh, there was specialized training, but what it did was drive a wedge between the laity or people who work outside of the professional church world with those who are clergy or work within, you know, the context of the of the church. 
and um, really unintentionally, there was there was a a growing sense of a hierarchy of jobs or vocations, and so you would have this sort of pecking order where. If you really want to serve God, you know, be a missionary. And, and then you, if you really want to serve God as a missionary, you got to go to certain countries, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. it can't even be like, you know, not a missionary. Canada doesn't count or <laughs> Australia. No, that doesn't count. You know, it's got to be like 1040 window, 1040 mm-hmm. window. Yeah. You know, uh, certain yeah. latitudes and longitudes yep. and, you know, and so, and then it, then healthcare workers, teachers, and then, you know, at the very bottom, like lawyers, mm-hmm. um, or politicians or whatever business people. And so, but that, that's really not the, the way the kingdom is designed. Right. Um, Right. We know that. In fact, there's all kinds of marketplace stories Mm. in scripture where Jesus is teaching to marketplace people or he's in the marketplace or, and that's really where most people live. And so there, there really is a recognition, I think that this is really a a demonic um, foil. This is a Mm. lie, right? If you can sort of unsteady people, and, de- and immobilize people mm. to not see their life outside of church life as ministry and as sacred, mm. then you're really undoing a lot of kingdom work. And so I think there was just a growing recognition that um, that we need to uh, do a better job as the church of equipping God's people across all professions. Mm. And the Faith at Work movement's really been focused on that. And David Miller, the same book I mentioned, really puts it into, he, he talks about the four E's, which I think is pretty good. Uh, many people are drawn to the faith at work movement for ethics. Mm. So they think about kind of ethics. They think about experience. They think about evangelism or they think about enrichment. Those four E's capture most of the traction in the faith at work movement. I think probably it's an integration of all of those. Mm. Um, and that's probably the most sort of biblical and holistic understanding. So that's that's the faith at work movement um, as a whole. I think over time, since I was first involved, it's gotten way more specialized. So in the early days, it was like people were just trying to find each other. Like, oh, you're a Catholic, you're an evangelical, you're Orthodox. Let's just get together. We share these values about faith and work mm. and ministry and daily life. Let's just come together. And people were just glad to find each other. Now it's way more specialized. Like mm. there's faith at work ministries for Pentecostals. There's faith and work ministries for um, people who work in bottling companies. I mean, it's, mm. it's wow. like, you know, it's really like specialized. There's yeah. company expressions of this. There's, um, uh, you know, there's, um, there, there's different focus. I talked about the four E's. There's, there's groups that sort of specialize in one of those. Oh, wow. Um, so it's much more sophisticated uh, and developed. And then there's all kinds of expressions like business as mission, where people are trying to figure out how to how to take these principles of business and faith and actually be a witness in developing countries. Um, and so you're, you're finding all kinds of missiological expressions of it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's cool, too, that you're um, like talking about how in order to build the kingdom you don't have to be a missionary and um, I think that was something that I think a lot of students potentially grow up thinking especially until, probably until they go into college and even are, are experience a bit of the faith and works yeah I'd, um, I have a friend or just to sort of come at that point he, yeah he, he tried to be provocative but he would he would <laughs> often say this he was a friend from my Seattle years um, he would say who's done more for um, India Bill Gates or Mother Teresa mm. 
Which is a pretty good question. Like Mother mm. Teresa is there as a as an you know an unbelievable person, right? Mm. Uh, amazing, and she certainly helped change the world, right? But so did Microsoft actually um, yeah. <laughs> by creating jobs and lifting a lot of people out of poverty. Mm. And so it's actually a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, they both were effective, and they both have brought um, transformation physical, economic, and even spiritual um, in different ways. I mean, I don't think yeah. Bill set out to explicitly do that, but I think um, as the standard of living and jobs are created, there was, um, you know, there was a tangential benefit that, that helps spiritual communities as well, I'm sure. Mm. So those kinds of debates are more than just philosoph- fun philosophical debates. They're actually really important kinds of conversations that we have. And the creation of jobs... And people, you know, bringing families and communities out of abject poverty where all they can think about mm. is the next day. Not mm. even, maybe not even the next day, just today. Where now they can start to plan. Mm. And, and when they can do that, the gospel can take root in ways that are different when you're just living day to day. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think, you know, the biggest thing too is like, as long as people have that mindset of like, I want to expand the kingdom of God, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter what job I hold, you know, what I do for my nine to five. Um, and so a lot of students are, I think, have that passion where they're like, I want to, you know, expand the kingdom of, the, of God um, to wherever I'm called. That being said, a lot of people don't know where they're called. And so is there a framework that you can suggest to guide students in helping them find their calling? Yeah, I, I there's a lot of good um, resources out there um, that I would you know, that we, we could encourage um, students to look at. We have these imprints, and we have an imprint at Upper House around vocation, and we actually have um, a list, a reading list. So that would be a good place to start. But I just recently um, wrote a little introduction for a friend of mine um, whose name is Su In Tan, um, and he's actually from Malaysia. He spends time in Singapore as well. And he wrote a little book that you can get in the States called The ABCs of Vocational Discernment. It's a short little book. Um, but he, he's got a, a helpful little framework, uh, A, for abilities that, you know, pay attention to mm. where your gifts are and interests are. Um, B stands for burdens of the heart. Um, wh- what do you have a passion for? What sort of gets you up in the morning that you, you find yourself thinking about when, you're, when your mind has the freedom to just think? Pay attention to those things. That's mm. sometimes the peripheral vision kind of stuff. Where does your mind drift to? If you have a day, what what do you do? And um, and start to connect the threads between your avocations and a potential vocation. Mm-hmm. So B, B is the burdens of the heart. And then finally C is critical um, incidents of one's life. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes um, the things that we have gone through are dimensions that open up possibilities and gateways for our long-term work. So back to my career, um, I had that time as a workout lender Mm. that started to introduce me to people in need and real pain who were struggling. Um, I had time in business school. It was a really transformative time and wasn't thinking about vocational ministry at all, but it, it opened up the need to come alongside MBA students and others who you know, might need support and pastoral encouragement. So each of these little seeds uh, is helpful, and I think they circle back 
and they provide they circle back as we progress in our our, our vocational journey, but they also provide little uh, hints to to God's uh, leading and guiding, and so those critical incidents are really important. So that would be one framework that you could you could think about. Do you have any um, scripture passages that uh, could either help shape this framework or even provide like a thoughtful view of work for these students to go off of? Yeah, there's so there's there are so many passages, um, but there, there's a lot right in the first three chapters of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the passages that I I just think worth spending a lot of time in is Genesis one, and to see, and I'm particularly calling attention to verses 28 through 31, and then it shows up again in Genesis 2, verse 19. But it's really this, this sense of our cultural mandate to, to oversee and to steward God's creation. And that's, that's really important. That's really the first command, is to, is to be a steward of God's creation. It involves you know, naming, and it involves um, all the cultural dimensions of of you know, caring for the garden, um, and and so that that's really important. And, and actually, you know, we start in a garden. We're not going back to Eden, but the images mm. of the new creation is a garden city. Mm. So if you imagine these two poles mm. of Scripture, Genesis one to Revelation, the last book of Scripture, there's this filling out of all of that culture. Mm to where this garden city actually comes back to earth. We don't go to it. It actually comes to earth. Mm. And it's full of all kinds of dimensions that we would recognize, commerce, trading ships. I mean, those are the images of the the new creation that we get in Scripture. Mm. And so God wants us to fill that and to to oversee that and to to oversee it well. So the garden might have had silicon in it, Mm. but it didn't have silicon chips, right? So that's Mm. the... That's the transition that we're on. Mm. Um, and so Genesis 1 and 2 are really important. Then, the, then it's undone, mm. Genesis 3. And I would encourage um, students to go there because there's an unwinding of all relationships, uh, person to person and all kinds of manifestations of that, person to God. Um, that's undone. It's restored, but it's undone. Um, uh, the nature of work itself, we now toil, right? Work is not like, we're not in the zone in our work all the time. We can find that zone, but we're not always in the zone. That's a reality of work uh, in the in-between stage. Um, and even creation itself groans. There's this sort of brokenness that, that happens. Um, Romans t- uh, chapter 8 tells us that creation groans. Um, and so there's all this sort of undoing. And we're really part of this big restoration project. Um, and so that leads me to kind of to the set, the next set of verses, which is really about understanding the unique role that we play in restoration. We've been clothed with Christ. We're, we're called to be a part of this, to be an ambassador. Second Corinthians five talks about us being ambassadors for reconciliation. But one of the passages that's really cosmic on this, this transformation thing that really includes everything um, is um, Colossians 1, 
um, 15 through 20, probably which has the most been the most helpful verse for me, um, or, or chapter in Scripture. And it's really the supremacy of Christ in all things. And it talks about Jesus reconciling all things to himself, things on earth, the things in heaven, things that are people, but also objects and institutions. So mm. people matter, but so do businesses, so do churches, so do hospitals, so do nonprofits. All of this matters. It's all being reconciled to God. He's going to one day um, bring all of creation back in accordance with his good and perfect purposes. Mm. And so that's probably the most um, egalitarian passage in Scripture that is the most enfolding. I mean, it's probably not the most. There's all kinds of passages. But it's one of those passages that just says everything is in bounds. Mm. Um, God cares about it all. He's after it all. Um, Don't get so focused on institutions that you're not thinking about people. And don't get so focused on people that you're not actually thinking that or remembering that God cares about institutions as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He actually cares about everything. You've got to hold it all together. So if you're working in a business and you have no people contact that day, you still can have a, a kingdom day. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you had people in uh, interaction that day. You still can be doing reconciling work, just building a really good spreadsheet mm-hmm. because that's bringing order, that's helping Others live with order. It's it 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 can be restorative, reconciling work as much as serving your colleague or even sharing the gospel with your colleague. Thank you for checking out this episode of the Upward Student Voices podcast. We hope you were challenged, inspired, and motivated to have a deeper understanding of work and faith. To learn more about Upper House, we encourage you to check out www.upperhouse.org for a complete list of events, to know about our fellows and intern programs, and see how you can connect.